Good afternoon. It's 4 p.m. Second Tuesday. Time for Boat Talk to barge in on Community Radio, WERU-FM Blue Hill, and WERU.org. This is yet another pre-recorded Boat Talk, so you won't be able to call in, but I'll have more on that later. Boat Talk is brought to you by co-hosts Alan Sprague and John Johansson, who roams the coast checking on what's happening in Maine's many boatyards. Everything's busy again. You know, uh, most of the boatyards have got most of the boats hauled up and put away, and they're starting their winter work. Uh, I stopped in at Wayne Beale's Boat Shop and got another look at that uh, Young Brothers 38 that he's doing, and he had already put the hard chimes to her. He had a little problem, he said, uh, shaping it when it got to the stern, but he figured it out and it looks good. And it's going to be interesting to see how that boat goes with rails on her, you know, with hard chimes. Yeah. You know, and he's got a, I, th- I believe it's a Waynebeal 32 top on her and the boat looks good, you know, and it it's a lot simpler to build, as you know. Instead of doing, because Young Brothers never had a uh, a molded top, so that it was all stick built. Hmm. So you know, so they replaced the stick built top and they put on a molded top, you know. So, but that that boat should go in the water within probably the month, and that's going to be interesting to see, you know, what kind of performance they get out of her, because they didn't change the motor. And so, you know, it's all been, you know, basically cosmetic work. So that's going to be interesting. I stopped in at Ellis. They've got a brand new 36 going underway uh, and a lot of repair work, uh, you know, which is the typical stuff because, they, you know, they run a charter fleet and they also do, you know, store a number of their boats, which is where they make this their bread and butter is, you know, the storage. And they learned that. I remember, and Donnie was there the last time I was there, which was kind of interesting because I haven't seen Don in I don't know how many years because very rarely do you see him in the shop. But because he's building a house, he says, and he thinks it's going to kill him. Uh, But, uh, uh, you know, he learned that. I remember back in the 90s when he started doing storage and repair and he went after his own customers, you know, people he had built boats for. And it was the smartest thing he could have done because, you know, if there's ever a downturn in the industry, you can survive because you've got storage customers. You know, Bob Vaughn at Seal Cove Boatyard is another one that learned not to do great big boat projects. Just do a bunch of little ones, you know, ones that take, you know, three, four weeks or something. Don't do that big one that takes all bloody winter because he got in trouble one winter doing that. And he said never again. And he didn't. He says, I know what I'm going to get out of each one of these sheds. He says, and that's what makes this boatyard run successfully. I mean, you can do the big projects, but sometimes those big projects bite you too. I'm sure you've been in on some of them. (laughs) Uh Yeah. Yeah. I can tell some stories. (laughs) Yeah. You you know, you you think it's going to take two weeks and two months later, you're still working on it, you know, and 
You know, I remember uh, Paul Bryant, who owns uh, Riverside Boat down in uh, Newcastle. He did that, you know, and he, he learned the same thing. Never again, you know. But all he stores mostly is wooden boats. And uh, his uh, son has basically taken over the yard now. And then I went over to John Cashmire at Wilbur Yachts, and he was busy. He was underneath a boat painting its bottom. It was a small boat. It was a um, a bigger uh, Boston whaler, probably a 20, 22-footer uh, center console. And he was painting the bottom of that, getting it ready just to put back into the shed so she's all ready for the spring. And then he had uh, two 36s, I believe, inside, or 38s that have both got, you know, basically uh, uh, just regular maintenance to do to them. You know, some varnish work, a little more extensive varnish work on one of them, because basically a lot of that that boat was varnish. I think the house is actually bright. And uh, so he's got that to do. Uh, where else did I stop? Mike York is working on a York. What is it? I think it's a... A 40, 38 or 40 foot powerboat that belongs in Northeast Harbor. And he's been working on that for a while, but it's, it was a big job. They had to rebuild the flybridge because the owner wanted something different in the flybridge, you know, new instrumentation and stuff. So the flybridge had to all be redone. And then they had to uh, repower her. So they pulled out the motors. And then that meant to redo a lot of the woodwork on the inside. And then once you got the woodwork apart, then, you, the, you know, sometimes the owners want things to look different. <laughs> and so so that's how that ended up. So it's been in there a, a number of years, let's say. And uh, I met the owner there once and she was she was really uh, chomping at the bit to get her boat. And it was promised to her last summer, but that didn't happen. So it better definitely go over this summer. And then, of course, I stopped at Peter Cass's shop, which is John's Bay Boat Company in South Bristol. And uh, he just launched uh, Second Wind. She's a 47 by 14 uh, wooden boat, because that's all Peter Cass touches is wooden boats. Uh, sort of his design, you know, mixed with a Carol Lowell design, because, of course, Carol you know, gave him the design originally. And of course, Peter's had to modify that as the boats got bigger and more stuff down below. But gorgeous boat. Uh, she went to Stonington uh, to a guy, Chris Clements is his name. He's John Williams' nephew. And John Williams has a 47, also the same width, which is 14 feet. And the reason that they did that was because she's a little more slippery in the water. So she saves gallons per hour, you know, when under power. And they don't have big power. Most of these boats have only got 500, 600 horsepower in them. You know, because a lot of boats that are 47 feet, you know, from down east, what do they got in them? 1,000 horsepower, 1,500 horsepower. <laughs> you know, biggest thing you could find on the planet to stick in these things, yeah. you know. But, you know, with the way things are going, uh, you know, some of the fishermen are wondering, you know, uh, you know, where this industry is going to go. And, and of course, with bait the, as high as it is, fuel as high as it is, you know, you want to be as frugal as you can be where you can be. And of course, one of the easiest ways is, is to get a longer boat, but don't make it wider, you know, make it easy to push through the water, you know, 
And that's what basically Chris did when he designed and had this boat built. So he's and uh, I was in Peter's shop and he's already got the backbone cut out and they've started to set up the next new boat. And she's, I think, I believe she's another 47, but she's going to be a yacht. And I can't remember where he said it was going. And, uh, but he figures in another 10 months that he'll have that one done. Usually he does a lot of winter work, you know, for other people, you know, people who have his boat, uh, go back there to have certain work done. And a lot of the fishermen, of course, with everything up in the air as it is, they decided not to do any of this work. So he has no winter work, which didn't bother him at all, because then he can basically focus right on the new, brand new boat. So that's going to work out well. Because I'm in Portsmouth right now, and I'm going to head up Thursday morning to uh, go to a couple other boatyards, because I want to go to Rumry's. And as I understand, they're fooling around with electric boat. And then, of course, I want to go to Stacy Raymond's, which is General Marine, and see what he's got going. Because usually he's doing either a 26 or a 22, because he's also got the Northern Bay 36 moles. And once in a while, he'll kick one of those out. And uh, I also took over the main boat builder show, which may have been not the smartest thing I ever did in my life. But, you know, I just don't want to see it go away. So, you know, we're, we I want to host that next summer on the 14th and 15th of July. Just two days boat show. Why three? This, this the, the one that Phineas put on? Yep. I took it over. Wow. So, you know, That's and they're helping. Uh, you know, they're going to give me a 20,000 square foot uh, building. And that's the first building we'll build. And then, you know, I'm trying to get all the boat builders there first. That's really what I'm focusing on, because what is it? It's the main boat builder show. Yeah. And get as many of the boat builders there as I can so that we can bring the people back. And and because it, it was special when those guys came. But I understand those guys don't like to come. You know, they like to stay in their shop, do what they do. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, wow. they, they have to realize that the customer, you know, they have to get a customer too. They do need to sell those boats. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, everything up and down the coast is, is, is going really well. When you think about the economy and what it could be, and usually anything recreational and especially the boat industry, we're, we're the ones to usually feel it the first. And the only thing you're feeling right now is commercial guys pulling back. We also talked about Kirsten Newshafer, who we mentioned in last month's show. She got started a little late when she bought the boat, you know, tried to come across. Well, it, things got frozen over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So she ended up stuck there and she was lucky because she found somebody that kind of knew what they were doing and was able to get it all put together and then sail it from there. What was it? Almost last December, about this time, she left there and went to uh, South Africa. Because then she turned around once she hit South Africa. She wasn't there very long. And then she turned around and went back to France. Yeah, yeah. She's... Well, she's an interesting character. She did a rescue, too. You know about that, don't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was that was pretty good. She was only about a little more than a hundred miles away from him. She was behind him, and she turned around. She turned on the engine, and there's a pack, I guess, on board, 
of all of the stuff that you're going to need to help with the rescue, like GPS and all of that stuff. And then she got to the site and she really couldn't see him. And he couldn't talk to her because his uh, VHS or whatever he was using wasn't working. And so she had to basically be in contact with uh, race headquarters and they were able to kind of veer her into, you know, his position because it was, it was a pretty good sea run and it was blowing pretty good, but she easily affected the rescue. And then within, I guess, hours, she had him on board of a great big container ship. And that bulk carrier was headed to China, but I think he got off before it got very far. He was able to be lifted off her and then, because he's finished. Yeah. yeah. You know, and she made the front page of their papers, I guess. But she's doing really well. Tonight I checked and she was only, she's 600 miles behind the leader. But she's got a better boat in the Southern Ocean or should be a better boat in the Southern Ocean. So, you know, she should be able to make up ground, but she's going to get redressed from the rescue. So that could be interesting to see how much redress they give her. And, you know, and if she can make up some valuable ground, she should do all right. She could be one of the top boats. She's easily in second. I think the guy behind her is, I think he's 100 miles back now. You know, she seems to have a better uh, speed than most of them because I check it morning and night, uh-huh. check to see how she's doing. Basically, she's running right above the uh, – uh, they have zones that you can't go below uh, because of ice. They have ice zones. Uh, I think a lot of the big racers now do that. I think the Vendee Globe does that. There's certain places you can't go below the latitude. And so, you know, she's running right above that along with, it's. I think it's Kerwin, I think is the guy that's in front of her. And he's doing the same thing. And she's just behind him. But because of her boat, uh, one of the newsletters that came out maybe two or three issues ago was really incredible. And I actually printed the whole thing about examining the type of boats that these people are using and how good they are in these conditions, you know, various conditions. And she should have one that they think is a good boat. Most of the sailors I've talked to is say that that boat that she's got is actually a really good boat for the Southern Ocean. You know, it's bigger. It's got more sail area. And, you know, she's an exceptional sailor, so she can handle anything you throw at her. She doesn't think twice about it. I think she could actually win this thing, which would be kind of incredible. We'll keep following, Kirsten. Another person we mentioned in last month's show was Tom Robinson. When I checked on December 3rd, Tom was approaching the atoll of Penryn, population 226. It's about 100 miles left to go for Tom to get there, and he still has over 2,000 miles to go to Australia. We'll keep following Tom. Now, to the main part of the show, a discussion of what I call vertical lines and horizontal whales, Most every Mainer knows about the controversy surrounding lines connecting lobster traps and other fishing gear to the buoys on the surface. Right whales are getting the bulk of the attention right now, 
And with lobster boats getting bigger and faster, the future looks worse for the number of ropes in the water. The Boat Talk guys got together with some very knowledgeable people to talk about this. We were joined by Sheila Dassett, Executive Director of the Down East Lobstermen's Association, known as DELA, and Amy Knowlton, Senior Scientist at the New England Aquarium, and both Sean Todd, Director of Allied Whale, and Zach Kleiber of Blue Planet Strategies, returning to Boat Talk. Sean gets things rolling with some ground rules. Yeah, thank you. Um, and um, thank you for this opportunity to speak about this. It, this, is, this is something I've been working on pretty much all my professional life, you know, starting off when I, when I was cutting my early scientific teeth down, up, down, up in Newfoundland. Uh, where we had a similar problem in different kinds of gear with a different species. And uh, now, you know, down here in Maine, the whole thing just seems to be transplanted to different gear and different species. Um, I think it's really important, Alan, when you when you say what you said, that we should define what we mean by whale. Uh, I think a lot of attention has been placed recently on right whales because right whales are critically endangered at this point as we know there's very very few left there's probably something around about 330 320 330 animals of which probably around 80 to 90 are females available to breed um, and when you put that together with the breeding biology of the right whale um, they, they can't reproduce very quickly uh, and that means that you know we're looking at a, a situation essentially where we're killing whales um, killing whales at a rate that is greater than they can uh, reproduce. So rightly so, there's been a lot of language around right whales. A lot of the things that NOAA is trying to do right now are legislative mechanisms that are possible and have been invoked uh, by the Endangered Species Act and the Marine Mammal Protection Act, specifically about right whales. But having said that, when we say the word whale in the Gulf of Maine, we don't just mean right whale. We have humpback whales and we have minke whales as well. And... Uh, a few other species that are probably less important in the whole entanglement story. So, um, you know, do do right whales get tangled in gear? Absolutely, they do. Um, is that gear necessary from Maine? Well, the problem the problem we have with that statement is is that uh, as a scientist, I can say that we don't have enough data to be able to answer that question yet. And and not having the data is not the same as saying it's not happening. It simply means we don't we can't quantify the problem yet. Uh, you mentioned the purple line uh, marking. That's an excellent innovation. Uh, it just hasn't had enough time to work yet. If we'd been doing that, say back in the two thousands, we would have had at this point twenty years of data to be able to look at that problem from that angle. But we just don't have enough time yet to be able to say that. Um, do whales in general get entangled in main gear? Unfortunately, yes, that is the case. We, we, we know we have minkies and the humpbacks at least getting entangled uh, every year in gear. Um, we, we expect that probably the number of entanglements that are reported are underestimates. Um, certainly, fishermen are in no way incentivized to report entanglement if they come across one. I mean, why, why would you want to? Um, and in some cases, whales are capable of breaking free. 
from these systems. And so, you know, we have all we have in the end is uh, physical evidence left on the body. So uh, either line trailing from the animal or scarring uh, that's on the animal. And it's in these ways that we know that, you know, most right whales in our population have been entangled at some point or another. So what we need to do, given that the animal, the animals that we're talking about are endangered, um, we need to take a precautionary approach. At least that's the, so precautionary in the sense that we know that Maine has a lot of gear and um, we know that right whales definitely do occupy Maine waters. That's another, that's another myth that we need to bust. Um, we have good data that shows we still have whales in Maine waters. So where we have whales and we have fishing gear, there is a potential for interaction. So essentially NOAA's strategy is to try to work out where it can do the most effective, where it can use the most effective policy. And I think that's why Maine is currently targeted in that way. First, we need to get some facts straight. Well, you know, one thing that always gets me is, is that we never see whales up in Penobscot Bay, way up in Penobscot Bay. So why make those fishermen do change all these ropes? Is it just a blanket policy, just easier to do? One of the problems we have is is that we do have whales going that far up. Um, actually, this this year we had uh, we had humpbacks in Frenchman Bay. We had uh, we had a humpback in in Goldsboro Bay. I don't know whether you're familiar with that area, but that is a very very inshore area, and actually pretty heavily populated with uh, uh, with fishing gear as well. So you know, some species do go in quite quite close. One of the problems we have is that. None of these animals are necessarily easy to spot. So when we say we don't see them, it's not necessarily they're not there. It's just that you're not going to be able to see them. You need pretty good conditions to be able to see them. The right whale particularly is very difficult to spot. You need special training to, to, to see this animal because it lives just below the surface and only comes out every now and then. So And it doesn't have a dorsal fin like the other ones, so it has a very flat back, which can easily be mistaken for a wave. So, you know, when I hear fishermen say, you know, I don't see whales – I don't blame them at all. They're not looking. I mean, why would they be looking for them? You know, they're looking at their boat. They're looking at their traps. They're busy, um, try, you know, get, re resetting their traps and collecting what they have. Um, then, you know, they don't necessarily have their eyes out the horizon all the time um, looking for an animal. And, you know, the blow, which is quite loud on a whale, would easily be covered by the sound of a hauler. So, you know, I, 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 I'm not surprised to hear that fishermen don't see the whales in the area, but it doesn't mean they're not there. I think they're absolutely there. Another point of dispute is purple gear. About three years ago, all Maine had to have purple rope sections in their lines to their traps. Canada is orange and Massachusetts is red. This is to help identify the source of entangled whales. This is Sheila Dassett of Della. And as you know, it's been since 2004 since there's actually been a, a right whale entanglement in the state of Maine and especially with the purple gear. Technically, Sheila is right. According to a NOAA report, since 2020, there have been 12 right whales spotted that were entangled with rope. 
but only one showed any identifiable colors, and that was Canada. And this is Amy Knowlton from the New England Aquarium. There are large whales being seen with, with purple marked gear on it. So we're starting to get a little bit of insight into what's... I think there have been at least five cases that I've heard about since September 2020 of large whales, uh, minkies and humpbacks entangled in main gear. So it, it's it's happening. No, it is a challenge. And I I know the fishing industry is they're bearing the brunt of of what is coming down the pike and i i do hope that the fishing industry is supported to adapt to this you know the gear the ropeless gear the weak rope gear the the changes that are are i hope are put in to help save the species but not i think the fishermen need to be supported so from the NOAA report i mentioned earlier there have been 84 new reported entangled whales since 2020. A lot of people would like to know just where the whales are. Now, as I understand, down south in South America, they're using AIS tagging systems that are working, or are they? Yeah, so in, in south, in, off of Argentina, they've been testing um, these deep implantable tags in southern right whales that really go deep into the muscle and we're not comfortable using them in North Atlantic right whales because we have right the right whales up here are not as healthy as southern right whales they're not as robust and we've seen negative impacts from these deep and plantable tags and they've only put in like three or four uh that have lasted for a long time so it's not it's not a tool for management it can certainly tell you some interesting things for that's an area where they really know very little about the right whale distribution down there. I think up here we have a lot better understanding, although climate change has certainly impacted that um, that knowledge. The patterns have shifted and that's made things a lot more challenging. That's another nail in the coffin, climate change, of course, which is not making the Gulf a particularly pleasant place to be. There's a number of different ways to attach a tag. Uh, the most benign method is the suction cup method. Um, however, there's a good correlation between how benign a tag is and how, well, it's inverse correlation between how benign a tag is and how long it lasts. So suction cup tags will last in the order of hours. Um, if you want to up the game and uh, you want to be more invasive, then the next step up from that is it's having spikes that go into the animal, um, often with uh, actually a full system that is a little bit um, sort of invokes what early whalers used when they would pierce the hide of a whale with a harpoon. The, the barb at the end of the harpoon was articulated in such a way that it would go in straight into the into the into the blubber and skin, but as you pulled it out, it would articulate and essentially form a T within the animal that was hard to pull out. And uh, essentially, that's what some of these other tags used to do. They used to have this little barb that would come out at right angles, and it would stop the uh, tag from from pulling out. The problem that we discovered is is that as the whale moves around the tag actually doesn't stay fixed in one place. It's, it it, it, uh, it rotates. 
And the, the concern that we have is, is that as it rotates, that barb, as it rotates around through the skin and, and the blubber of the animal, uh, would cause an abscess that would then later infect and, you know, had the potential to cause um, significant harm, perhaps even death to the animal. So right now, the whole business of tagging is, I, I, I don't know whether Amy would agree, that, we're, that we have a sort of a pause on the go. Right now, I think the only tags that really we approve of as, as an industry are the suction cup tags, because we know that they have they are minimally invasive, albeit it's a bit invasive putting them on. Um, but, you know, the act of actually having them on doesn't seem to impact the, the whale's behavior. And we really haven't come up with a good solution that goes beyond that, that has more permanence. The other thing I would mention very quickly as well is, you know, how these tags powered. So, you know, tags, everything needs power. Um, and any any fisherman will tell you that any any time you use a battery out in cold weather, it does it does not last. So also we have to think a little bit more about battery technology. If we want tags to work on a scale of years, which I think is probably the scale we're looking for, for it to be at least months for it to be useful in understanding distributions and movements, we would need a far better uh, idea of how to power that tag. And often batteries are what power the sides of the tag itself. So, you know, tags are small or large because of the amount of power that they need to drive them. So, you know, I think we are some way off. Uh, and that could be one of the places where we could go to in terms of asking the politicians for money for R&D to think a little bit more about that. Um, there are so-called natural tags uh, so, for example, photo identification, the art of uh, taking a photograph of an animal, and when you see the animal next, you identify it by certain characteristics on the body. That's a natural tag. So it identifies an individual. Of course, you have to be out there to photograph it. So, you know, that requires more effort. Um, and in some ways, passive acoustic monitoring is a way of tagging an animal in that if you listen for an animal and you hear it, you know it's there. So um, I guess what I'm saying is that I think right now that the, the, the idea of tagging these animals in some sort of permanent sense to get a better idea of movements still requires significant science. Um, it'd be great to see the money go into that, but I, you know, I, don't, I don't see that as a priority coming from the government right now. But this idea of upping our monitoring game in some way by having acoustic networks up and down the coast that are listening for right whales or by having aerial surveys or boat surveys that are looking for right whales, I think all those things will probably yield much more effective results, better better bang for your buck, essentially. Amy, do you agree with that, or do you want to push back? Yeah, no, I generally agree with that. And I think my concern about focusing on tagging is that I don't think we could ever tag enough right whales to use it as a management tool. It may be helpful to answer some basic questions um, about like, where are they going if they're not going to the Gulf of St. Lawrence or after they leave Cape Cod Bay or some questions like that. But the tagging efforts that have been done in on other whale species usually just are tagging a handful of animals because of the challenges of tagging, the costs of tagging and the, the, the impacts to the whales and uh, so it's not, I don't think it can ever be really used as a way to manage the fisheries or to manage um, most things that we, we need to manage to help the species. But 
perhaps it could answer some interesting questions. And I think that's always the important aspect to tagging is what question are you trying to answer if you put an invasive tag onto these whales? And uh, so that's, I, so I think tagging is, we've tried it before. It's not been as successful as we would have hoped. And I think it, uh, it may never be as successful as one would hope who might be impacted by right, you know, by these uh, regulations, but I think it's not ever, in my opinion, going to be able to get there on our, on our watch. Next, John asks about SOSUS, S-O-S-U-S. SOSUS is an underwater array of listening stations that the Navy developed to detect Russian submarines. That was starting back in the 1950s. Does the Navy still use SOSUS, the underwater listening devices? And would that help you? I, th I think the answer to that is it's classified. Uh, <laughs> 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 but um, I, I mean, I expect so. That's that's an awful lot of hardware to not be because... not to be used. And I, I I haven't heard of anyone getting into the SOSUS array. It might not be, it might not be ideally placed for the kind of inshore stuff that we're talking about. But yeah, go on. Well, it was interesting because Mary uh, Mosher, who is part owner of Nautical Scribe here, a nautical bookstore in Stockton Springs, she was a captain in the Navy and said that they had opened up SOSIS at one point and people couldn't believe how many whales there that they actually could hear in the system. Now, I don't know that's, how, that's how far that went. That's absolutely true. That was I, I, I was I was present for that revolution. And it was astonishing what the Navy mm -hmm. had been recording all that time. Right. Um, so uh, to what degree it could be, you know, that's that's an excellent sort of out, um, outside the box type thinking. And I, I can't answer that question. Amy, can you answer that question? Yeah. I mean, I again, I don't know what the Navy is actively doing now. I think, you, as you mentioned, it might have been more of the deep water way offshore. Uh, they were documenting um, blue whale vocalizations and able to track blue whales at great distances. But uh, right whales, I'm not sure they were able to sort of pick those up under the SOSA system. But I don't know enough of the details about what they're doing presently in the Navy. There is a, There are a lot of acoustic gliders out there trying to detect right whales in the near shore waters. And their real-time um, they're being detected real time if when they hear them. And if you go to whalemap.org website, you can see where right whale, uh, where aerial or vessel surveys have occurred and where acoustic gliders are in place and when they've detected right whales. So it's a pretty cool system that whalemap.org has set up and uh, to give the public an opportunity to understand what what is being done out there where surveys are and what is being seen and heard. So, I, I would say this, right whales tend to work in inshore waters where it's actually acoustically fairly noisy. So that would challenge any sort of long distance um, detection of their signals, assuming they are signaling. Uh, so that would really probably require a much more localized network, which you can see an example of on that website. Um, yeah, and, and you know, the, the idea that we're in sonifying our ocean with more and more sound and making it harder for whales to 
to communicate is 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 another another topic. Um, are you aware of the uh, the right whale um, 9/11 story? It's a little disturbing, actually. Um, so uh, during during the the the, the horrors of 9/11, um, the uh, the Gulf of Maine was shut down to shipping traffic. So for a couple of days, the Gulf of Maine was much much quieter than it normally is, and just by complete happenstance. Uh, the aquarium happened to be sampling um, right whales in the Bay of Fundy, I think, Amy. And uh, and they were looking for hormone levels. And so they were able to detect that the right whales got less stressed for a couple of days while the ocean was so much quieter. And then, of course, as we started to relax our security a little bit more, a couple of weeks later, the sound built up again because we had more ships in the area and the right whales returned to their, their sort of high stress levels. So we're certainly not creating an environment that is particularly pleasant for the animals. Where's most of this sound come from? Um, mostly from ships, but also from any anything that any motor that's in the water or any kind of inter interrogative tool like sonar or um, some sort of seismic um, exploration device. Anything that employs noise and sound in the ocean, and it doesn't have to be necessarily local either. It could be, you know, sound travels so well underwater that the sources um, are generic and they could be hundreds of miles away. Uh, th th by the time they get to you, it's just like a general hub hub. Sheila Dassett explains the lobsterman's viewpoint. Well, it, it definitely is not a new thing. I've been with the Downey's Lobstermen's Association for 18 years now. And this has gone on and on and on. Uh, a lot of the people with the new rallies, it's new to them, but uh, over the years, we have done everything that we possibly can. I've written it in my articles in the Maine Coastal News that the gear has to have breakaways and we put the breakaway in and then we did purple end line rope and that had to be put in. And then halfway down the line, we had to cut it again and, and make breakaway knots in it and purple again. And if it's offshore, they also have to have a green marker in it. And it's, it's a lot of work. I've been on video with uh, Andrew Joyce about this, and it's it's just a lot of work for the fishermen, a lot of expense. Yes, I, I've done two articles. I don't know if anyone has read them, but I called them Simon Says. And what I meant by that is we've been asked to do these changes and as we do these changes, and again, there's a lot of labor, a lot of expense, the rules change again. The following year, they say, well, you know, we want you to do more. Well, it'd be kind of nice to know if the last change that we made worked before we have to go back to the drawing board. What's happening is we, we this past year, we had so much rope work to do and so much expense. I mean, the breakaways that we had, they had to be uh, trial and error. And the ones that were done by uh, plant, 
a lot of the fishermen had already put them in their gear when they were recalled because they were breaking too soon. So here we go again. And so they had to refine these breakaways and, and start over again. Huh. So by the time we got in the water, we had just, just gotten our ropes ready. And it took us most of the winter to do it. My husband actually had his brother come from Michigan and his wife, and they were sitting out there in the shop helping us put these little purple markers halfway down the line uh, mm -hmm. with purple twine. And we have the purple rope, as a matter of fact, wasn't even in stock yet uh, where we had it ordered. And it just came in. And the season's almost over now for us. Is this something that the government should pay for? If they wanted us to do it, I would think so. I I have information on that. There is a, a lending library down uh, Woods Hole, the uh, Northeast Fisheries Science Center has a lending library where they're uh, letting lobster fishermen use various uh, ropeless gear to try it out and evaluate it. The uh, the list that I have from them, only one of them has a price, uh, and that's $10,000 for one pop-up buoy. Wow. That's a that's lot. Not, that's, not, that's not right. That's not right. That's <laughs> no, not right. No, no, no. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no, no. You got a better price? <laughs> right now, all these systems are really a lot. You know, EdgeTech it has a commercially uh, one that you can buy for about 4000 But you have to remember, it's still very early on. There, a lot of these systems are still, um, you know, just still being tested. And, and we don't know what the price will eventually be. It's like the first car, or the first cell phone, right. right? They were much more expensive. The first and, TV. And we, the first TV, yeah. The, the, mm -hmm. um, so, so we're very early on in this. Of course, there's a hope that the economy of scale will, will bring the price down uh, as more units are built or if more were built. But, um, uh, you know, there, there are, and, and the, what right now, there, there, there's a real uh, opportunity here to develop a suite of tools from A to Z. You can, from what one company that is producing a, a system that just holds line on the seafloor, right? And it, it, now they believe they can do that on demand. It will hold the buoy and line down. And they're looking at a price point of $300. They were, and they're holding to that right now. They think they can do it for $300. And then you have all the way up to thousands of dollars worth of gear that are much more advanced. And that's the key, is to develop that whole suite of tools. So for Because every fishery is so different. And every uh, fisherman, uh, the, there's fishermen fishing different species of fish and, and fishermen that want different tools. An offshore fisherman isn't going to use what? someone closer to shore or in crab or lobster or gill netter. I mean, they're all, all, all of these are, are so different and all around the world. And so uh, there, there's an opportunity to really uh, work with fishermen and develop the, this, the tools that they need so that they can, they can ha use technology to, to, to uh, address this. Back to Sheila Daza and the MLA is the Maine Lobstermen's Association. I got the impression that Della really wasn't interested in 
testing ropeless gear, at least not at this point. Do you have any any options or any any talk amongst you who uh, as to what you might want to do to uh, move forward? Well, not really. I'm, what I mean is I know that um, Kristen Porter and a handful of the guys with MLA tested it. And they went, I'd have to talk with him. This is the MLA crew. We have a meeting coming up. I'd have to actually discuss it with them. And I don't have the answers at this point in time. One concern Sheila mentioned is regulations. I spoke with Jeff Nichols of the Maine Department of Marine Resources. Lobstermen can get a permit to test ropeless gear, but not to use it at will. This is Jeff Nichols. Um, yeah, it requires a, a buoy at the surface, which is uh, has to be has to be visible at the surface. So that you know, um, that's uh, how. Uh, the gear is identified and the harvester is identified. So, um, uh, you know, I would encourage you to, to check out the law, um, but it, it is in law right now that um, lobster, um, lobster trawls, which are the strings of trap on the bottom, <clears throat> have to be marked by a buoy that is visible at the surface. So that is in law right now, state, state law. So that would be um, part of, of obviously what would need to that law would need to, to change. Um, but we're like I said, we're we're a ways away from that. We're still very much um, that technology is still um, needs to be tested and developed before before we're at that point. So that brings us to Peter Stein chief scientist at Scientific Solutions in Portland. He's been doing underwater acoustic stuff for the Navy and other government agencies for a long time. He has a very good idea for ropeless gear and for the DMR to keep track of whose gear is where. This is where lobstering finally enters the 21st century. Peter's idea is to have a small, tethered, underwater, remotely controlled vehicle that will go down from the boat and electronically locate the trap, which has its own mating electronic unit. Then the UAV connects with the trap and the tether hauls everything up. No other lines required. Plus, the electronics on the trap can report water temperature, salinity, and other valuable information. And if the electronics includes listening ability, it can report whale sounds and then combined with other reporting units, it can be used to locate whales and and perhaps prevent ship strikes. Peter Stein said it's also possible for the DMR to have on board or tow a sensor that can locate, identify, and haul, if necessary, anyone's gear from the bottom. 
It's faster and it's easier than looking for buoys. Plus, we get all that extra information. While I'm on the subject of electronic stuff, you may be interested in the website called whalemap.org. It shows whale locations in the last two weeks. That's whalemap.org. We need to also mention that lobster traps are not the only vertical lines in the water. This is Zach Cliver again. You know, I want to tell you, uh, Alan and John, that uh, I don't know if you heard, but we've been working with gillnet fishermen to test ropeless in the gillnet fishery. And we've had a fisherman who has been using a hybrid um, gillnet system where he's removed one end line. He's removed the high flyer from one end and he's just fishing with one high flyer and the other end is ropeless. And he's using the ropeless gear system as his anchor on the other end. And he's been having very good success with that. And he, and he is ready to go fully ropeless in with his gillnet. And so um, it's, it's exciting when you're working with fishermen and you see how excited they get about the gear and they start to figure out what, what the potential is and what they could do with it. And, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of opportunity here. You know, and, and it's very quick to jump to the negative pieces about ropeless, right? Oh, it's going to cost too much. It's, it's, uh, it's uh, uh, you know, whether it's going to work and what, can I fish close to, the, to, close to a guy with it if I can't see my buoys in line? But you know, the first the first car was super expensive. The first cell phone was super expensive. You know, it was huge. It was enormous. <laughs> and now we're all walking around with a computer in our pocket. And and the only way we're going to prove out the prove this out is to to advance this and see how far it will go. And when you when what we've what we've discovered in doing ropeless with fishermen is. This this could help with gear loss, which is a big issue. If you can mark your gear effectively, right, on the seafloor and you can acoustically locate it, you you may not lose your gear. Um, molestation of gear is always a big issue, right? A lot of a lot of guys want to use ropeless just to avoid having their gear cut off, right? In in territorial fights and disputes and things. With, there's a lot of questions that still need to be addressed. Um, what we want to do with our research now is proximity testing, where we set a, a string of uh, lobster traps with ropeless at each end, and then use the subsea uh, location marking to mark it, and then go set close to it with another string of ropeless gear and see how close we can fish under different tides and currents and locations and depths and do that over and over and over again to see how well the gear will fish in close proximity, that, that has to be done. We, we, you know, that's a question that the fishermen need to know. Um, we need to understand efficiency. We have to, we have to set uh, strings of ropeless next to strings of buoy and line gear in the same depth of water, in the same conditions and haul through those gear quickly and see how efficient both, both are with a hull mounted transducer in the in the for the ropeless system so it's 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 apples to apples these are the kind of things that need to happen and we need we need the industry to work with us and and there are fishermen 
there's a in Canada they caught over 300,000 pounds of lobster and snow crab ropelessly this last year. So I mean the, these the, the there are fishermen that are actively catching uh, acoustic lobster and helping this and uh, advance this to see what the opportunity is. So that's the, I'm so thankful for the fishermen that we get to work with and they're they've been fantastic, you know. Do if we had fishermen that wanted to use ropeless gear, who would they contact? Me. Okay. <laughs> please, <laughs> please contact me. We were looking for fishermen, and uh, you know we're we're actively looking for fishermen that want to participate. And and we're working with the science center, the Northeast Fishery Science Center, so that we collect the data that's needed and get gear from the gear library and uh, and and potentially pay fishermen to do the testing. A lot of these guys are getting paid to do it. You can reach Zach at blueplanetstrategies.com. Blueplanetstrategies.com. The future of whales seems to be in our hands. There will be no instant solutions but if we keep working together like this, progress is possible. Thank you to Sheila Dassett of the Down East Lobstermen's Association, Amy Knowlton of the New England Aquarium, Sean Todd of Allied Whale, and Zachary Cliver of Blue Planet Strategies. Well, I'd like to say thank you for taking notice of this issue and inviting this forum. And I think, I hope we've just proven that it's possible to get together and actually talk reasonably about this. Oh, yes. And, you know, unfortunately, the current rhetoric is is not encouraging that. <laughs> so, you know, it is possible to talk civilly and to figure out, well, uh, we didn't figure out here, but at least to start a conversation that is civil that comes back to the middle. Well, I think the other thing is, is that when we've got updates is to keep up to date on the show, you know, so that we can bring it to the people so that they do have that option of hearing both sides in a more civilized fashion. Yeah, that would be great. I agree. This has gone very well. That will end this segment about whales. But, as John said, we will be following up on this in future shows. If you are wondering what you can do now, a good thing to do is to contact your state representative and put in a good word for the whales. I have an update on Tom Robinson rowing across the Pacific. As of December 10th, he has reached the... Penryn Atoll, and the tracker shows him at the Kenneth House Bed and Breakfast, a bed and breakfast in the middle of the Pacific. There's a song there. Only 2,000 miles to go for Tom. There were a lot of things to talk about today, and I expect many of you have comments you would have liked to add. The good news is, this is the last pre-recorded boat talk. Next month, we will be back in the studio live again.
and ready to take your phone calls. There is one small catch, however. Right now, WERU is still using our antique phone system, and we can only take one phone call at a time. Anyone who calls while someone else is on the line will only get a busy signal. With some patience, this will work until we upgrade to fiber optic lines. Comments and suggestions for Boat Talk are gladly accepted at boattalk at gmail.com. This is Alan Sprague for John Johansson. Thanks for supporting Nonprofit Community Radio. (laughs) 